Good afternoon and welcome. Good afternoon and welcome to an EU public meeting here on this fantastic day. Um, EU is a group that meets here to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to this campus and to this world. Uh, and I'd like to extend an, an especially warm welcome to you if you're here for the first time or for the 500th time. Uh, and now we have a special performance from Andrew Filmer. G'day. Well, summer holidays, what you've received, summer conferences, what to do? Well, let's ask the experts at Summer Bay. Viv, even if we can't go, we can still do something worthwhile. Nothing's as good as a summer conference. True. But hang on, when Tom gets back, I'm sure he'll let us go, won't he? Hey Tom, can we go? Yeah, sure thing, kids. Yeah. Hey, wait kids. Listen, the EU is offering two great conferences this summer. Both are fantastic, but both are different. There's the AFES's national training event. You mean NTE? Yeah, NTE. Great conference. I'm going to NTE. Yeah, but don't forget Club Veg. It's a great getaway held in the week before NTE. So you've got to make up your minds, kids. Do you go to one, or the other, or both? Hey Matt, I think I'll go to Club Veg. With hair like this, I'll fit right in, in Jerangong. <laughs> yeah, mate. What are you going to do? I don't know. What can you tell me about this Club Veg? Well, it's a conference, held at the end of November. When, mate? From the 26th to the 30th. Sorry. 26th to the 30th? I usually go to the beach that time of year. Yeah, well, mate, it is at the beach, at Chitty Clodge. Uh, is Chiz speaking at it? He sure is. Wow, you know, I heard he was really good. Mate, he is really good. So what's he speaking of? Your place in God's world. Your place in God's world? What's that supposed to mean? It's not some crazy self-help thing, is it? No, it's biblical. It's like guidance, choices, commitment. Yeah, I need some guidance with this hairstyle. <laughs> hey Matt, meet Craig McLaughlin. G'day oh, mate. mate. Take a seat boys. So uh, Craig, we're just wondering, uh, could we ask you like a bit of a personal question? About me? Yeah mate. We're wondering if NTE and Club Veg are conferences worth going on. Could you recommend them to us? Yeah, could you? Absolutely. They're sweet, mate. Ah, thanks for that. Oh uh, yeah, we'll go get our forms then. Yeah, we'll make sure you book early, you know, just to avoid disappointment. Cheers, mate. Have a good one. See ya. Yeah, it's all fake anyway. What are you filling in there? I'm just registering for Club Veg and NTE. NTE? What's that? Well, NTE is a conference held by the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical yeah, Students. Yeah, AFES. Yeah, it's a week of training students to improve their skills in various aspects of ministry with an opportunity for hands-on practical application. Sounds great. It is. Well, 
Tell me more. Well, it's on this year from the 1st to the 11th of December at Stanwell Tops Conference Centre. Oh, yeah. I heard the first five days of training sessions and on the next five days you go out by yourself. No, as part of a mission team led by Andrew Caday. Yeah, who else? Well, Mike Kwan and Murray Smith. Sing and honour, glory and power, being too... G'day, Craig. Oh, g'day, boys. You registered yet? Yeah, we just did at the table after the public meeting. Just over at the Carswell building. Oh, pretty easy, wasn't it? Yeah, NTE was only 200 bucks. Yeah, and Club Veg was only 90. Sweet. Well, we better get in some training. We'll race you. Yeah, clock's running, boys. Yeah, come on, Craig. You're going to have to be fit to keep up with Chiz, Cade, Kwani and Murray. Summer conferences, here we come! Well, bookings are now being taken for Club Veg and AFES's NTE, National Training Event. If you're interested, you can either visit us at the Rego desk at afternoon tea after a public meeting, email clubveg at safemail.net, phone me, not during dinner times, and uh, come along because there's uh, only limited numbers for Club Veg and there's early bird discounts available for AFES's NTE. Summer conferences, you've heard it from the experts. Uh, that was an amazing video and although Andrew and I don't quite have the appeal of Craig McLaughlin, we still insist that it's worth going on, it's fantastic to register early so they'll be outside. Um, if you'd like to take your Bibles out now to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Ian Powell is going to come and speak to us over these next few weeks uh, from, and continue our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, if you have a Bible, look around you, uh, check out who doesn't have a Bible and uh, look to share it with them. That would be fantastic. Hello, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. How about if I pray? Uh, Father, we thank you for the way that you've created us and you've given to us uh, each one of us, different gifts and abilities. Uh, thank you for the gifts of the people who just put together that brilliant uh, video piece. And Father, we thank you that you've given to us gifts which we can use to build each other up and to further your cause in our very needy world. And we pray now that you would bless us with that great gift of your Holy Spirit, that each one of us may hear what you have to say to us and that it would uh, transform us in a permanent way, that you would transform the way that we think and so transform the way that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Next week, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 12. This week, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13. There's a logic to that. I won't bore you with all the details. But it really is at the centre of those chapters 12, 13, 14. 1 Corinthians 13. Now I know I met a lady who when she heard this passage read out at Princess Diana's funeral and I want to stress quickly I did not watch her funeral nor did I watch her wedding. I'm not a Republican but I have a life and so uh, I just thought I'm not interested in watching either of those things. Um, but apparently um, some British politician read 1 Corinthians 13 out and some people thought he'd made it up, that it was so beautiful. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is a particularly beautiful part of the Bible. 
Well, it's often chosen for weddings. Uh, and it's also about love, which has got some connection as well. At the end of chapter 12, where the apostles have been speaking about different gifts, different abilities people have, and people seem to be squabbling about which gifts more important than the other and which person with which gift should be given more esteem than the other, the apostle finishes with this statement. Strive for the greater gifts, but I will show you a still more excellent way. The question I'd like to start with your attention is this. Do you think it's wrong as a Christian person, if you're not a Christian, you can give your opinion anyhow on what you think Christianity might be about, do you think it's wrong as a Christian to want to be great? Is that an inappropriate thing for a Christian person to want, to want to be great? Do you think it's inappropriate to want the more important, if there are such things, the more powerful gifts? Is it wrong to want to be great? Last year, as I was listening to Mark 10 being read, it struck me that it doesn't seem to be wrong. A number of times in the Gospels, Jesus' disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest. And Jesus doesn't turn to them and say, listen, brothers, it's wrong to want to be great. What he says is, let me tell you what true greatness is. And it seems that God doesn't mind if you want to be great. God is quite happy if you want the greater gifts, whatever they might be. What he wants, though, is the right to tell you what true greatness is. He doesn't want you to work it out from the limits of your own culture, from the limits of your own experience. He wants the right, quite rightly as God, to teach us what is true greatness. Once we've understood what true greatness is, he wants you to go for it. I take it Jesus wants every one of us here to be truly great. Not fakely great, as in our culture, but truly, really great. And he doesn't mind, as the birth of this red showed, that he says you ought to strive for the greater gifts. There are some gifts that are more useful than others. And it seems as if God is saying it's appropriate for you to want those gifts. Well, let him tell us what they are, but to go for greatness. Now this passage, which I've used the title from a book that sold over 1.5 million copies called The Greatest Thing in All the World, which is a book about this chapter, is all about the things that really matter. It'll take you into the very heart of what real greatness is. What does it mean to, as it were, be a person of enormous substance? How is it possible to appear to be great, even in the church, even amongst God's people, and yet to be a nobody and a nothing from God's point of view? Let me read to you verses 1, 2 and 3. They ought to shock you a little bit. Just a tad. I'm reading from the light purpley coloured sheet. If I were to speak in the tongues of humans and even of angels, but I have not love, I have become just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I should have the gift of prophecy, and if I penetrate all the mysteries too profound for human discovery, and if I have all knowledge, and if I had all faith, even sufficient to move mountains around, but I have not love, I am nothing. Even if I should divide up all my possessions to feed the needy, even if I hand over my body to be burnt, or it could be I hand over my body so that I may glory, but if I have not love, I gain nothing at all, or it counts for nothing. It's a fairly strong passage, isn't it? And I want you to, if you could sort of focus your eyes on those verses 1, 2, and 3, there's a very clear method, I think, that the Apostle's using. He picks a gift, which we'll look at more next week. 
as they're discussed in chapter 12. He picks a number of gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, knowledge or wisdom, and faith, the sort of faith that can do miracles, that sort of particular faith, the faith that God will use to do extraordinary things. He picks these very important spiritual gifts and says, let's imagine you've got that gift. And then he multiplies it. He flies off into this sort of soaring fantasy of how wonderful it would be if you had that gift multiplied a zillion times. He says, if you had that gift multiplied an infinite number of times, so it was the very end point, you were the most gifted person with that gift that had ever lived on the planet, is if you had that wonderful gift from God, times a zillion. And then he says, but if you don't have love, what is the consequence? So have a look with me at verse 1. He says, if I were to speak in the tongues of humans, if I had the language... And uh, you know, we'll look at this next week. Whatever it is the tongues is, and there's some legitimate discussion about what it means to speak in tongues, it at least means to speak in languages. He said, if you have the ability to speak in languages, and then he pushed it to the, the even if you could speak in the language that angels talk. So you've got the gift of languages, even if it was the gift that angels themselves talk. If you don't have love, what are you doing? You're just making a racket. That's all you're doing. So you may have some extraordinary capacity with speech and words and languages such that people look at that, gee, I wish I could speak like that person. I wish I could be as fast as that person, as clear as that person, as brilliant as that person. I wish I could speak like that person. What God is saying is if you have this extraordinary gift, even push to the point where you could communicate with angels. You can have a bit of a chat with Gabriel and Michael and all the others in their own language you don't have love you're nothing but a noisy racket as far as God is concerned you may make all sorts of money you may get all sorts of esteem but without love as God defines it and we'll get to that you're nothing you're just a racket verse 2 tongues is the gift that the Corinthians seem to have been most keen on prophecy is the gift that the apostle Paul is most keen on so now he picks his favourite gift his favourite ability and he says if I should have the gift of prophecy the capacity to speak God's word to understand the mind of God and to speak it clearly then he pushes it to the ridiculous extreme if I could penetrate all the mysteries that are too profound for human discovery and if I had all knowledge okay, you hear what he's saying he's saying if I could write that book that would once and for all solve the mystery of suffering that Christians have been writing on for 1700 years with little bits of life if I could actually understand once and for all the mystery of human suffering and God's love, if I could write the book that would understand and unpack the Trinity so anybody could understand how there can be one God and three people, if I had that sort of wisdom, I could get to the bottom of the deepest mysteries in the universe. If I could write the book that would finally make it easy to understand how God can be sovereign and humans have responsibility and freedom. He's saying if I could get to the bottom of every single, if I had that sort of knowledge, that sort of wisdom, that sort of extraordinary insight that no human being has ever had, if I had all of that, but I haven't loved, I'm a zero. I'm a nothing. You're a nothing. If you have all those abilities, so admired by others, in and of themselves, very useful gifts, but if you have that extraordinary ability but not love, as far as God is concerned, you're nothing. You're nobody. You're a zip. You're useless. If you haven't got love. 
Then he picks up this question of faith. If I have all faith, then again, push it to the furthest extreme. Even sufficient to move mountains around. But if I had enough faith to say to God, dear God, please move the Blue Mountains to Rose Bay. And I had that faith and God, we, we opened up our eyes and there they were. The three sisters overlooking Bondi. <laughs> and then I prayed again, dear Lord, please move them back where they used to be. We open up our eyes and you've got to catch the train to see them. If you had that sort of faith where you could do miracles, God would hear your prayers and answer them. If you don't have love, you are nothing in the eyes of God. You see how radical this passage is? I mean, it's an extremist passage the apostles talk about this, and that's his favourite gift. Prophecy and then faith. Look at verse 3. If I should divide up all my possessions to feed the needy, that's impressive, isn't it? You take all your possessions, all your money, all your assets, you divide it all up and give it to the needy. That's a wonderfully Christian act to show that sort of concern for the poor. He says, if I was to do that, and then, as you can see, there's a bit of trouble in knowing exactly how to translate one word in this next section. Even, he says, if I was to hand over my body, that part's clear. Now, whether or not he means in order to be burnt, that you're willing actually to let yourself be burnt up, or whether it means hand over your body so that you could boast, which is an, uh, doesn't make much sense to me, how that would be considered as a good thing in Christian thinking. But either way, what he's saying is, if you didn't just hand over your wealth, but you actually sold your body, perhaps into slavery, so you could divide the money up, that you're willing to lose even your own body. That's impressive, isn't it? Well, if you don't have love, you gain nothing. There will be no reward in heaven. Jesus often speaks about making for yourself a purse in eternity by being generous with your money by giving to the poor the Bible says you loan to the you give to the poor you loan to the Lord he says if you were to give all that you had even to sell your body so it's tough to give away if you don't have love it's worth absolutely nothing now this is strong stuff isn't it do you hear the, the power of this this is not a nice thing to be read at a wedding this is like a bucket of freezing cold water being poured over you I used to listen to this about every second Saturday when I worked in a school as a chaplain. We'd go and do beautiful weddings with beautiful people, nice cars, and this would be picked to read. And it, I, I sort of felt it got a bit like background music for people. Oh, yes, it's lovely. Love is passionate. But it's not like that. This is about as radical a passage you're going to get anywhere. It says you can have all the abilities, all the God-given abilities, speaking in tongues, prophecy, wisdom, faith, generosity, without love, it means absolutely nothing. It's about as clear as it gets, isn't it? It's very, very strong. And yet, you know, I, I was a Christian for years, for years, before I got some inkling about how important love was. I mean, I knew it was out there. I knew it was on the agenda as a Christian. But I didn't realise that really that's everything. That's where it's all heading, that you should become a person of love in the way God defines it. Nothing else ultimately matters compared to you being a man or a woman who can be defined by the word love. All the other stuff that we look at people, I mean, you may look at someone and think, gee, I wish I was that person. And is there anybody, anybody in the world who you envy? You think, gee, I'd like, I'd like to have that person's abilities, that person's looks, that person's spiritual gift so I could do what they do. Then I'd feel as if my life was on track. 
If you had all those things and not love, it doesn't mean a single thing. Fairly clear, isn't it? Then I want to jump to verse 8 for a moment. Under the second heading, the things that last. I take it one of the, one of the ways that we work out what's important is by what lasts, isn't it? Uh, we work out what's going, to, you know, what's going to affect me for a minute, what's going to affect me for 50 years. Right? So you see a lolly on the road, your favourite lolly, a lolly that you thought they didn't make anymore because some huge foreign company had taken over the little Australian company and they didn't make it anymore, and there it was on the road, and it was clean, looked clean. <laughs> And there were all these memories flooding back of the beauty of the lolly and it had a bad day. And you the only problem was that there was a few huge trucks roaring down, right? Side by side, three of them, side by side, hammer road. Three or four of them behind it. Now, you can take it and put the lolly in your mouth and there'll be that split second of pleasure. But you probably wouldn't do it because there's a long-term effect and we do tend to work out what's worth doing by working out what's a short-term thing, what's a long-term thing. Right? We all do that. That's why some of us who don't like learning, not that there's any of us here, <laughs> for those people at the university who don't like studying and reading and learning all sorts of stuff, they may still do some study as they come up to exams. They'll sacrifice a night. They'll sacrifice a party. Short-term pain for the fact of getting a degree. So what lasts? And we're told here in the last section about what lasts. Look at verse 8 with me. And what lasts, of course? Well, not of course at all. What lasts is love. Verse 8. Love never falls apart. It is the idea of something that was once strong, great and magnificent, like a healthy leaf that withers, dies and falls off the tree. Right? It just falls apart. It was once good, it was once magnificent, it's now decrepit. Love never falls apart. Whether it be prophecies, the Apostle Paul's favourite gift, these will be ended. Whether it be tongues, there's a sort of a dismissiveness in the way that he structures the sentence. Whether it be tongues, the Corinthians' favourite gift, these will stop. If it be knowledge, it'll be rendered obsolete. But love never falls apart. Then he says, for we know in fragmentary ways we have bits and pieces of knowledge, even our knowledge of God at the moment. It's only fragmentary. It's true. It's wonderful. It's important. It's vital. But it's fragmentary. We know in a fragmentary way we prophesy in fragments and parts of bits of knowledge, bits of words of truth about God. But when the completed whole comes, what is piece by piece will be done away with. So saying there's a time coming when instead of having a piece of knowledge and a few words about God, the whole and the complete and the whole picture will come into view. He's speaking here of that great invasion when Jesus Christ does return and the new age comes in incompleteness. He says at that point, prophecy, knowledge, it's all just fragments, it'll all just be ignored. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to talk like a child. When I reached adulthood, I finished with things of childhood. For now we see indirectly by means of a mirror, but then face to face. For now I know only in part, but then I shall come to know just as fully as I am known. There's a whole lot of contrast here between that which is partial and momentary and incomplete, 
which that which is lasting and enduring and solid and whole. Corinth was famous in the world of that stage as a place that made beautiful bronze mirrors. So when you're shopping, if there's a bronze mirror, check on the back to see that it's made in Corinth. They made the best mirrors. So the Apostle Paul picked up this image. He says, Now we see indirectly by means of a mirror, good and all as the mirrors were, they were not quite the same as seeing face to face. So if I had someone here with a wall there, I could see around, I could see them. It's only a mirror. It, it gives me an idea of what's coming, but not the depth and the beauty and the clarity. He says, Now all our knowledge of God, even that which we have through Jesus Christ, his Son, even the words of prophecy, the words of knowledge, the words of truth that come in the ministry of the congregation, he said, it's only partial. It's like looking in a mirror. It's true, but it's only two-dimensional. It's missing things. And this is no reason to despise what we know, to talk as I've when I listen to the radio, I can listen to the ABC religious reports. Ah, and um, they often have Christian type people, only normally strange Christian people. They don't let any wackos like me on, anyone who takes the Bible too seriously. They don't tend to get much of an airplay. But they're all, they're all this. We can't say anything about God because he's so deep and mysterious. Right? Can't speak about judgment because it's who knows how God lives. We know he loves us though, but everything else we don't know, it's all mysterious. Except the nice stuff. And that's not what this is saying, but it's just acknowledging that even that what we know about God is nowhere near as magnificent as it will be when he returns. And with all due respect to the scriptures, we will not be having Bible studies or EU lectures in heaven. So if I have a gift of prophecy, and maybe I do, maybe I don't, depends on how you define it, my gift will be a complete and utter waste of time in heaven. Right? So if you make a big deal about, I've got the gift of prophecy, I can speak the word of God, listen to me, give me status, notice me. That's okay. You know, it's just like the lolly on the road. It's there, it's nice for a moment, it's useful. Only momentary. But when the perfect comes, it'll just be like when I used to talk as a kid when I was a little baby I spoke cutely I spoke nicely I played childish games that was fine I don't particularly want to do it now it's just not my thing I've left those things behind so it will be when Jesus Christ returns verse 13 so now there remain faith, hope and love these three but the greatest of these is love now some people say why does Paul suddenly be talking about love, 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 love and suddenly brings in faith and hope? Has he suddenly realised he's been overstating it? Well, maybe. This was a digression. Right? He's just trying to put everything in perspective. But he says these three things are things that will last. Prophecy won't, tongues won't, all sorts of things won't last. But faith, hope and love do last. Although it's true that faith and hope will both be radically transformed when Jesus comes. Because sometimes faith is pictured as we walk by faith, not by sight. But then, as it says here, we will see face to face. We will see Jesus face to face. We will talk to him like that. It would be wonderful. We'll see God. Faith will be changed, but we'll still trust God, won't we? You go back to the Adam and Eve account. They trusted God. So faith continues. We continue to trust God in heaven. Hope continues, not in the same way, We've got this magnificent expectation of what God has promised us. But there will be an expectation in heaven. No two days will be the same. Have no fear that you'll be bored 
heaven. You know, people don't want to be boring in heaven. Much more fun in hell getting burnt to death. That's great. That's a really good time. No, no, no. Fun, pleasure, variety, creativity. They come from God. There'll be no two days alike in heaven. So there will be a level of expectancy, even as we're enjoying God today, to realise that, you know, who knows what it's going to be like in a few zillion years' time, if there is such a thing as time there. So there's some level of expectancy in heaven. But love continues unchanged. Love is the one activity you can do today that you will continue to do in heaven. It's the one thing that endures. It's the one lasting thing. God is love. The very nature of God. We are made in his image. So we know that the thing that matters, without which everything else is just trash, as it says here in this magnificent bit of mathematics, this is the divine mathematics here. Gift, I didn't work this out actually, man called Robert Forsyth worked this out. Gift minus love, that's what the L stands for, love, equals nothing. Now, just I want to put my own signature on this, okay? You can take your gift and multiply it by infinity. And it doesn't make a scrap of difference. You can square it. You can do anything you like. That's what the Apostle Paul does. He says, take your little gift, tongues, language of angels. Take your prophecy, understand every single mystery there is to know. You don't have love, it's utterly useless. And it's the only thing that lasts. So now, the last point, we're going to look at what is this thing, love? And as so often happens in the Bible, you don't get exactly what you might have wanted. You might want a definition. Love is. You know, like a dictionary. That's fine. But because that's not all that life-transforming, you don't often get that sort of definition from God. What you get is a description of love in action. What is it like if you love people? How can you tell if you love people? I want to suggest to you the, the simplest way for me to define love at the moment. I think it fits into this one. If I may give a definition, which is pretty stupid because the Apostle Paul doesn't, but I'll give it a go anyhow. At this point, I take it to love here is to be like God who is not self-centred. God is the God. Jesus Christ is the person who lives for others. So one of the loveliest descriptions I've ever heard of love comes from the very end of William Booth's life, the founder of the Salvation Army. Many of you know this story. Right near the end of his life, he began this movement of God that has transformed the world. There are a whole lot, all the officers in the northern part of, of uh, America, America, USA and Canada, met together, a huge conference. The old great general himself was supposed to come in and he couldn't come, he was too sick, couldn't get there. He sent them a telegram. Massive expectation to hear what the general would say to them. What they knew would probably be the last year of his life. They opened up the telegram and had one word on it. And the word was? Others. Isn't that brilliant? That's love. Where you live for others. You are set free from the dark little dungeon of your own little ego to live for others. To live for God. To live for that which God has made. To live for God's concern and his people. And we have a magnificent description of love in action. A great scholar has put together a book where he looks at every single reflection on love in the Bible. And in the second volume of it, he just looks at the, the, the way that the Apostle Paul uses love, the way that Peter uses it, and the book of Hebrews. And he discovers a hundred different activities that the Bible says are the result of love. It's a very fruitful thing, love, when you commit yourself no longer to live for yourself, but for others. And here are some of them. 
in verse 4, 5, 6 and 7. You have firstly two positive statements, then eight negative statements. The last of the eight negative statements is balanced by a positive statement and then you get four sharp ors or nevers, depending on how you translate it. Well, let's have a quick look at it. Verse 4. Now, the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to give you this particular translation is because many of our translations translate the verbs here as adjectives. So they say love is patient. Where really the word patient is actually it's a verb. So that's why I prefer this particular translation. I think it's slightly, it gives us a better image as to what love is. Love is a doing thing, not a feeling thing, not a static thing. So first it says love waits patiently. The word literally means long-tempered. We have the word short-tempered. We don't tend to use the word in English um, long-tempered. Like we have the word ruthless, but we don't tend to speak of someone as being ruthful. There are a number of times that we, 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 we have one form of a word, not the other. This is the word for long-tempered. In fact, all of the words here in this passage are to do with the issues that are, are bubbling away and causing trouble in time. The first thing it says, if you're a loving person, you'll be slow to become angry. It's part of the realism of the Bible, isn't it? It assumes that if you're bumping around with human beings, you're going to need to be a patient person. People will annoy you. People will irritate you. People will hurt you. To be a loving person, to be a God-like person, a Christ-like person, is to be a person who endures injury and puts up with it and is happy to wait for God and for God's promises. Love, is, love waits patiently. Secondly, love shows kindness. Now, it is possible, I think, as Christians, for us to be so, trying so hard to let people know that being Christian is not about being nice. I probably have the people think being Christian is about being nice and being kind and sweet and putting a few bob in the Salvation Army box when it comes along, that sort of thing. We say, no, 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 it's not about being nice. But that's true, it's, you're absolutely right. But at one level, it is. Right? Because love shows kindness. That is, if you are a Christian person, therefore you're a loving person. You will be a kind person. Is that a word that people would think about when they think about you? He is a kind person. She is a kind person. Right? Is that the sort of word... It's a, if, if you ever hear someone describe you like that, you should be very thankful. Kindness. It's a thoughtfulness of others, a generousness towards others, concern for their well-being, concern for their happiness, taking them seriously. Oregon, the Christian from Zillions of years ago, described it as a sweetness. Right? Being a sweet person. But love is patient and love is kind. Love acts kindly. Then we've got a whole lot of negatives. Love does not burn with envy. This is to do with status, isn't it? Someone has an ability, has a lifestyle, has a girlfriend, has a boyfriend, has a folder that you wish you had. <laughs> so you burn with envy. Right? A person who lives for others is not liable to burn with envy. To think, I wish I had that. I hate the fact that person's got that. I've noticed they just listen to conversation. How very common it is if someone's really good or very beautiful for them to be hated. We had a girl when I was in primary school called Lyndall Carter. She was a lovely, kind, brilliant girl who topped every single subject. So some of the guys got together and we formed an anti-Lyndall Carter club. <laughs> and the idea was it was chosen that you know this guy would beat her in social studies, this guy would beat her in maths. It was just a vicious nastiness 
We hated the fact she was so good and she was so nice. We are very envious, petty little creatures. Watch it. It'll come up at various times. That's why when the Bible says weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, Christians have often said it is easier often to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's harder sometimes to be happy when your friend or a member of your family has a great triumph than it is to feel sorrow for them because we're very competitive, envious little creatures. But love does not burn with envy. It does not brag and boast and speak about itself and its own accomplishments. This is tied up with it. See, we want status. We want people to take us seriously. We want to be seen as winners. So we hate it when someone else does better than us. Some of us do, I don't, but some of you do. Uh, and at the same time, we want to just drop the fact that we're really good at things too. Like I recently met a Christian man. He's got to be in his 60s. And he was the most boring human being I've seen in a long time. I'm trying to work out if I should write to him. He kept on talking about himself. His trips, his ministry, what God did through him. And you feel like saying, mate, shut up. I've heard enough about you to last me for a lifetime. He's an adult. He's in his 60s. You'd think sheer gentlemanliness would teach you not to go on like that. And he was an extreme example, but we brag, don't we, sometimes? you ever do that? Just drop in, let people know how good you are, how clever you are. Well, someone does it. We don't do it, though. It's not puffed up with our own importance. You know those little creatures that puff out their chest, like you know, these fish that puff themselves up, little toads that do that, you know? When you walk down on the beach, I don't puff myself up, I'm normally holding my stomach in. But when I was younger, I used to puff my chest up, you know, you sort of make yourself look more impressive than you really are. Well, it says here, you know, if you're loving people, you're not into bragging, you're not into puffing out your chest and letting people see how big you are. Love does not behave rudely. I've always had a problem with that because that's one of my gifts, rudeness. <laughs> I've always tried to work out a way to get around this verse. Love does not behave rudely. Now, see, let me suggest to you, sometimes if you're a young, liberated Christian, you may actually use your freedom and liberty to offend people. There may be people at your church, for example, who are slightly more conservative, who think things should be done decently and properly, and you know it doesn't matter if you stomp all over the pews, etc., and if you go and sit up on the communion table or whatever you've got in your church. But if there are people for whom that would be offensive, I want to suggest to you love does not act rudely. Love takes other people's sensibilities seriously, even if you know they're ultimately not significant, because you live for others. Not for the uh, indiscriminate expression of your own freedom. So love does not behave rudely. Love is not preoccupied with self-interest. Like the related to bragging. This, friends, is why we're not very good listeners, isn't it? See, listening is a wonderful way to love people. You want to know what it means to love our friends? You want to be a loving? Learn to listen. Show an interest in their life. What's it like to live in that skin? To listen is a powerful way to love. But if you're self-interested, you'll find the other person boring unless they're talking about you. Love is not self-interested. It will enable us to listen and take other people seriously. Love is not touchy, that is, easily annoyed. That's why it's good to get sleep, isn't it? It's always true, I think, even, even at your healthy age, that if you don't get enough sleep, you're liable to be a bit more touchy, more easily annoyed and irritated. And as you come to your exams, we still have exams at unis. Right? This does not give you any license to be rude to your parents or flatmates. Oh, I've got exams, I'm allowed to be rude. No, you're not. There's no excuse for being touchy, taking yourself too importantly. 
love is not touchy and even when people have annoyed you and have been insensitive and have been rude love keeps no record of wrongs we just don't keep an account of the fact that this is the fourth time you've been rude to me this morning uh, or whatever we just don't we, we don't keep a record of those things we're not interested in our accounts we don't keep a record of wrongs we need to whip on don't we love finds no pleasure in wrongdoing gloaters yeah I, I think Christians can do that sometimes we're quite happy to run through other people's failings other Christian groups failings we delight to hear people who we don't agree with making mistakes being caught out no 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 we don't take pleasure in wrongdoing in mistakes even when it's by people who may oppose the gospel but we gladly celebrate the truth a person who's interested in love can just accept the truth even when it makes them look bad disagrees with their case because we're interested in others not defending our own little case if we're wrong good we'll be humiliated we'll learn again but a person who loves the truth that's the mark of someone who loves they're not interested in their own little agenda and lastly it never tires of support never loses faith never exhausts hope and never gives up in many translations that's rightly translated as love bears all things believes all things hopes all things and endures all things that is easily misunderstood what it means so I'm just saying it's, it's saying it's a limitless thing right? it's limitless in its good faith in its desire to believe the best about people it's not saying you cut your brains off we're told not to believe certain things in the Bible but it's saying as against being cynical and quick to disbelieve we wish to believe the best about people now let's just conclude with three quick things firstly you may have done this what's a really helpful exercise is to reread this putting your name in it where it says love have you done that before it's a great help to work out areas where you may need to pray and to work on things so it goes like this verse 4 I'll use my name Ian waits patiently Ian shows kindness Ian does not burn with envy Ian does not brag Ian is not puffed up with his own importance Ian does not behave rudely Ian is not preoccupied with self-interest Ian is not touchy Ian keeps no record of wrongs Ian finds no pleasure in wrongdoing etc etc it's a helpful exercise isn't it to take that yeah, be a good thing to pray through wouldn't it to work out areas where we can work on our love by reading that out with your name in it what's even more refreshing and quite appropriate is to replace the name love with Jesus and you get a lovely true portrait of Jesus Christ there, have a look at it, verse 4 Jesus waits patiently Jesus shows kindness Jesus does not burn with envy Jesus does not brag Jesus is not puffed up with his own importance Jesus does not behave rudely Jesus is not preoccupied with self-interest Jesus is not touchy Jesus keeps no record of wrongs etc he never tires of support never loses faith never exhausts hope he never gives up I'd like to suggest to you a little thing that I did having read the book The Greatest Thing in All the World a friend and I did this because the book suggested it it was very helpful we formed a little partnership and for one month every morning before we went to college we read 1 Corinthians 13 uh, takes a couple of minutes to let this sink in to begin to see that if you have a thousand abilities and you're loveless it ain't worth a thing it's the only thing that lasts and it's all about how you treat others this is the central thing a month might be too much what about a fortnight take this, stick it in your Bible, read it slowly, read it aloud is even better makes you think 
Maybe even a week. Go the week. Okay? Month might be too long. But to read this and let it soak its way in so we know what's important and how to live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this part of your word. Thank you for the call to be like you. And we do pray that you would make us men and women who learn to love, who grow more loving this day. When we are irritated by people, help us to be not touchy. When people wrong us, help us to hold no record of wrongs. Help us to get over our pettiness and our competitiveness with others, that we may rejoice in their successes and their blessings. Jesus, thank you that you are kind and patient, that you keep no record of our wrongs. And we do pray that you would write this part of your word into our lives, that we may be true disciples of yours. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Ian will be around afterwards if you have any questions. Um, And I encourage you to continue thinking about those issues that he raised in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Can I draw your attention just very briefly to the IFS Giving Day next week? IFS is the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, which is the umbrella body um, of which EU is a part. Uh, And so there'll be an opportunity to give to that ministry next week. Um, Until then, just remember to register for summer conferences, and I'll meet you outside for afternoon tea.